This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi everyone, it's John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Stories for the Road. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network, and we like to think of ourselves as caffeine for the curious. The next time your travels take you near Boston, make sure you stop by to see the oldest lady in Boston. She was given her name by George Washington, and she's the world's oldest sailor and warrior having fought against the Barbary Pirates and in the War of 1812, where she captured dozens of war prizes and sunk the careers of five British ladies who dared to go up against her. During the Civil War, she helped train U.S. Naval Academy recruits, and 80 years later, she went on a world tour, visiting old friends in 90 different ports. In 1997, she celebrated her 200th birthday, and we hear she's still active around Boston. She was so beloved by her American countrymen that any and all efforts to send her into retirement were given up on, reinforcing the nickname she had earned in the War of 1812, Old Ironsides. Her name, as many of you have already guessed, is the USS Constitution. She's America's oldest still active warship, a 44-gun frigate, and she is respected and cared for at her pier in the Boston Harbor. If you're ever in Boston, she's a great old lady to visit. In 1785, Barbary pirates began to seize American merchant vessels in the Mediterranean Sea, most notably from Algiers. In 1793 alone, 11 American ships were captured and their crews and stores held for ransom. To combat this problem, proposals were made for warships to protect American shipping, resulting in the Naval Act of 1794. That act provided funds to construct six American frigates, but it included a clause that the construction of the ships would be halted if peace terms were agreed to with Algiers. The old lady's keel was laid down on November 1, 1794, at Edmund Hart's shipyard in Boston, Massachusetts, and she took 60 acres of trees to build her. The primary materials used consisted of pine and oak, including southern live oak, which was cut from Gascon Bluff and milled near St. Simons, Georgia. President John Adams ordered all Navy ships to sea in late May 1798 to patrol for armed French ships and to free any American ship captured by them. She put to sea on the evening of July 22, 1798, with orders to patrol the eastern seaboard between New Hampshire and New York. Incredible as it might sound, the United States was paying a toll to the Barbary States during the Quasi-War to ensure that American merchant ships were not harassed or seized. 
In 1801, Yusuf Karamanli of Tripoli was dissatisfied that the United States was paying him less than they paid Algiers, and he demanded an immediate payment of a quarter of a million dollars. That was the last straw for the United States and President Thomas Jefferson, who sent a squadron of frigates to work out the problem. The U.S. Marines landed on the shores of Tripoli, and the U.S. has never looked back. The USS Constitution was there to deliver the Marines. Captain Edward Preble recommissioned the Constitution on May 13, 1803, as his flagship, and made preparations to command a new squadron for a third blockade attempt. The copper sheathing on her hull needed to be replaced, and Paul Revere supplied the copper sheets necessary for the job. She departed Boston on August 14th of that year, 1803, and she encountered an unknown ship in the darkness on September 6th near the Rock of Gibraltar. Constitution went to general quarters, then ran alongside the unknown ship. Preble hailed her, only to receive a hail in return. He identified his ship as the United States frigate Constitution, but received an evasive answer from the other ship. Preble replied, I am now going to hail you for the last time. If a proper answer is not returned, I will fire a shot into you. The stranger returned, If you give me a shot, I'll give you a broadside. Preble demanded that the other ship identify herself, and the stranger replied, This is His Britannic Majesty's ship Donegal, 84 guns. Sir Richard Strahan, an English Commodore. He then commanded Preble, Send your boat on board. Preble was now devoid of all patience and exclaimed, This is a United States ship Constitution, 44 guns. Edward Preble, an American Commodore, who will be damned before he sends this boat on board of any vessel. And then to his gun crews, Blow your matches, boys! Before the incident escalated further, however, a boat arrived from the other ship, and a British lieutenant relayed his captain's apologies. The ship was in fact not Donegal, but instead HMS Maidstone, a 32-gun frigate, not 88. The Constitution had come alongside her so quietly that Maidstone had delayed answering with the proper hail while she readied her guns. This act began the strong allegiance between Preble and the officers under his command, known as Preble's Boys, as he had shown that he had courage and was willing to defy a presumed ship of lime. She was later captained by Isaac Hull, William Rogers, and William Bainbridge, meanwhile building a reputation as one of, if not the, best fighting ship in the Navy. Since the formation of the U.S. Naval Academy in 1845, there had been a growing need for quarters in which to house the students, the midshipmen. In 1857, Constitution was moved to dry dock at the Portsmouth Naval Yard in Virginia for conversion into a training ship. Some of the earliest known photographs of her were taken during this refitting, which added classrooms on her spar and gun decks and reduced her armament to only 16 guns. Her rating was changed to a second-rate ship, She was recommissioned on August 1, 1860, and moved from Portsmouth to the Naval Academy in Annapolis. At the outbreak of the Civil War in April 1861, the Constitution was ordered to relocate further north after threats had been made against her by Confederate sympathizers in Annapolis. Maryland had sided with the Union, but most of her people backed the South. Several companies of Massachusetts volunteer soldiers were stationed aboard her for protection. The barge R.R. Collier towed her to New York City, where she arrived on 29th of April, 1861. She was subsequently relocated 
along with the Naval Academy, to Fort Adams in Newport, Rhode Island, for the duration of the Civil War. Her sister ship, United States, was abandoned by the Union and then captured by Confederate forces at the Gosport shipyard, leaving the Constitution the only remaining frigate of the original six. Settling in again at the Academy in Newport, a series of upgrades was installed that included steam pipes and radiators to supply heat from shore, along with gas lighting. From June to August each year, she would depart with midshipmen for their summer training crews and then return to operate for the rest of the year as a classroom. In June 1867, her last known plank owner, William Bryant, died in Maine. George Dewey assumed command in November, and he served her as commanding officer until 1870. But by 1871, her condition had deteriorated to the point where she was retired as a training ship and then towed to the Philadelphia Navy Yard, where she was placed in ordinary on the 26th of September that year, 1867. In 1905, Secretary of the Navy Charles Joseph Bonaparte suggested that the Constitution be towed out to sea and used for target practice, after which she would be allowed to sink. Moses H. Gulesian read about this in a Boston newspaper. He was a businessman from Worcester, Massachusetts, and he offered a purchaser for $10,000. The State Department refused, but Gulesian initiated a public campaign which began from Boston and ultimately spread all over the United States. The storms of protest from the public prompted Congress to authorize $100,000 in 1906 for the ship's restoration. First to be removed was the barrack structure on her spar deck, but the limited amount of funds allowed just a partial restoration. By 1907, Constitution began to serve as a museum ship with tours offered to the public. Admiral Edward Walter Eberly, Chief of Naval Operations, ordered the Board of Inspection and Survey to compile a report on her condition, and the inspection, February 19, 1924, found her in grave condition. Water had to be pumped out of her hold on a daily basis just to keep her afloat, and her stern was in danger of falling off. Almost all deck areas and structural components were filled with rot, and she was considered to be on the verge of ruin. Yet the board recommended that she be thoroughly repaired in order to preserve her as long as possible. The estimated cost of repairs was $400,000, and this was in 1924. That was a lot of money. Secretary of the Navy Curtis D. Wilbur proposed to Congress that the required funds be raised privately, and he was authorized to assemble the committee charged with her restoration. The first effort was sponsored by the National Elks Lodge, so remember to thank your local elk for saving the old lady. Programs presented to school children about old Ironsides encouraged them to donate pennies towards her restoration, eventually raising $148,000. In the meantime, the estimates for repair began to climb, eventually reaching over $745,000 after costs of materials were realized. By September of 1926, Wilbur began to sell copies of a painting of Constitution at 50 cents per copy. The silent film, Old Ironsides, portrayed Constitution during the First Barbary War. It premiered in December of that year, 1926, and helped spur more contributions to her restoration fund. The final campaign allowed memorabilia to be made of her discarded planking and metal. The committee eventually raised more than $600,000 after expenses, still short of the required amount, and Congress approved up to 300000 to complete the restoration. The final cost of the restoration was $946,000, just short of a million. Lieutenant John A. Lord 
was selected to oversee the reconstruction project, and work began while fundraising efforts were still underway. Materials were difficult to find, especially the live oak needed, but Lord uncovered a long-forgotten stash of live oak, some 1,500 short tons, at the Naval Air Station Pensacola, Florida, that had been cut sometime in the 1850s for a shipbuilding program that never began. There were a lot of people who cared about the old lady. The Constitution entered dry dock with a crowd of 10,000 observers on the 16th of June in 1927. Meanwhile, Charles Francis Adams had been appointed as Secretary of the Navy, and he proposed that Constitution make a tour of the United States upon her completion as a gift to the nation for its efforts to help restore her. She emerged from dry dock on the 15th of March, 1930. Approximately 85% of the ship had been renewed to make her seaworthy. Many amenities were installed to prepare her for the three-year tour of the country, including water piping throughout, modern toilet and shower facilities, electric lighting to make the interior visible for visitors, and several polaruses for ease of navigation. Forty miles of rigging was made for Constitution at the Charlestown Navy Yard rope walk. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Constitution recommissioned July 1, 1931, under the command of Louis J. Gulliver, with a crew of 60 officers and sailors, 15 Marines, and a pet monkey named Rosie that was their mascot. The tour began at Portsmouth, New Hampshire, with much celebration and a 21-gun salute, scheduled to visit 90 port cities along the Atlantic, Gulf, and Pacific coasts. Due to the schedule of visits on her itinerary, she was towed by the minesweeper Grebe. She went as far north as Bar Harbor, Maine, then south and into the Gulf of Mexico through the Panama Canal Zone, and north again to Bellingham, Washington on the Pacific Coast. The Constitution returned to her home port of Boston in May of 1934 after more than 4.6 million people visited her and gave their thanks to her during her three-year tour. The Constitution returned to serving as a museum ship, receiving 100,000 visitors per year in Boston. She was maintained by a small crew who were berthed on the ship, and this required more reliable heating. The heating was upgraded to a forced air system in the 1950s, and a sprinkler system was added that protects her from fire. The Constitution broke loose from her dock on September 21, 1938, during the New England hurricane, and was blown into Boston Harbor, where she collided with the destroyer Ralph Talbot. But being a tough old lady, she suffered only minor damage. With limited funds available, she experienced more deterioration over the years, and items began to disappear from her as souvenir hunters picked away at the more portable objects. The Constitution and USS Constellation were recommissioned in 1940 at the request of President Franklin Roosevelt. In early 41, the Constitution was assigned the hull classification symbol X-21 and began to serve as a brig for officers awaiting court-martial. The United States Postal Service issued a stamp commemorating the Constitution in 1947, and an act of Congress in 1954 made the Secretary of the Navy responsible for her upkeep. A wise move. 
1970, another survey was performed on her condition, finding that repairs were required, but not as extensively as those which she had needed in the 1920s. The U.S. Navy determined that a commander was required as commanding officer, typically someone with about 20 years of seniority. This would ensure the experience to organize the maintenance that she required. Funds were approved in 1972 for her restoration, and she entered dry dock in April of 1973, remaining until April of 74. During this period, large quantities of red oak were removed and replaced. The red oak had been added in the 50s as an experiment to see if it would last better than the live oak, but it had mostly rotted away by 1970. As America neared her 200th anniversary in 1976, preparations began for the upcoming United States Bicentennial celebrations. Her new commander, Martin, set the precedent that all construction work on the Constitution was to be aimed towards maintaining her to the 1812 configuration for which she is most remembered. That was the war that earned her the name Old Ironsides. The privately run USS Constitution Museum opened on April 8th 1976, and Commander Martin dedicated a tract of land as Constitution Grove one month later, located at the Naval Surface Warfare Center in Indiana. The 25,000 acres now supply the majority of the white oak required for repair work. I've been getting emails lately from Hoosiers as a result of our recent Ernie Pyle episode over at 1001 Heroes, so you Hoosiers ought to be proud that, and that any replacement timber going into the USS Constitution is from Indiana. On the 10th of July, 1976, the USS Constitution led the parade of tall ships up Boston Harbor for Operation Sail, firing her guns at one-minute intervals for the first time in approximately 100 years. On July 11th, she rendered a 21-gun salute to Her Majesty's Yacht Britannia as Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip arrived for a state visit. The royal couple were piped aboard and privately toured the ship for approximately 30 minutes with Commander Martin and the Secretary of the Navy, J. William Middendorf. Upon their departure, the crew of the Constitution rendered three cheers for the Queen. Nearly a million visitors toured Old Ironsides in 1976. When she emerged from dry dock in 1995, a more serious effort began to prepare her for sale. As in the 1920s, education programs aimed at school children helped collect pennies to purchase the sails to make the voyage possible. Her six-sail battle configuration consisted of jibs, topsails, and driver. Commander Mike Beck began training the crew for the historic sail using an 1819 Navy sailing manual and several months of practice, including time spent aboard the Coast Guard cutter Eagle. On July 20th, Constitution was towed from her usual berth in Boston to an overnight mooring in Marblehead, Massachusetts. En route, she made her first sail in 116 years at a recorded six knots. It would be hard to imagine the feeling that her captain and crew must have experienced on that voyage. On July 21st, she was towed five nautical miles offshore where the tow line was dropped and Commander Beck ordered six sails set, jibs, topsails, and spanker. She then sailed for 40 minutes on a south-southeast course with true wind speeds of about 12 knots. Her modern U.S. naval combatant escorts were the guided missile destroyer Ramage and frigate Halliburton. They rendered passing honors to old Ironsides when she was under sail, and she was overflown by the U.S. Navy Flight Demonstration Squadron, the Blue Angels, inbound to her permanent berth at Charleston. She rendered a 21-gun salute to the nation off Fort Independence in Boston Harbor. Today, the mission of Constitution is to promote understanding of the Navy's role in war and peace 
through active participation in public events and education through outreach programs, public access, and historic demonstration. Her crew of six officers and 46 enlisted participate in ceremonies, educational programs, and special events while keeping the ship open to visitors year-round and providing free tours. The crewmen are all active-duty members of the U.S. Navy, and the assignment is considered to be special duty. She entered dry dock May 2015 for a scheduled restoration before returning to sea. She's berthed at Pier 1 of the former Charleston Navy Yard at one end of Boston's Freedom Trail, and she's open to the public year-round. The privately run USS Constitution Museum is nearby, located in a restored shipyard building at the foot of Pier 2. The Constitution typically makes at least one turnaround cruise every year, during which she is towed into Boston Harbor to perform underway demonstrations, including a gun drill. She then returns to her dock in the opposite direction to ensure that she weathers evenly. The turnaround cruise is open to the general public based on a lottery draw of interested persons every year. The Naval History and Heritage Command Detachment Boston is responsible for planning and performing her maintenance, repair, and restoration, keeping her as close as possible to her 1812 configuration. In 2003, the special effects crew from the production of Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, spent several days using Constitution as a computer model for the fictional French frigate Archeron, using stem-to-stern digital image scans of old Ironsides. So when you see that movie, you're looking at her. The old lady, at last check, is in fine shape and helping to teach kids and adults what the U.S. Navy looked like, sailed like, and fought like over 200 years ago. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. Here are some of the reviews people have been sending. We do hope you take a minute and please send us one at iTunes Apple Podcasts. Five stars. 1001 Rules by Miss Ange, 4284. We love all the 1001 shows and John is a wonderful host. We listen all the time. We look forward to hearing the new episodes every week and it's so cool being able to share them. Jimmy and I are history buffs and loyal fans. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Andrea. And this one, Everything You Do, by J. Rockchild, rating five stars. I love, love, love your stories from all your broadcasts. I was listening to Urban Legends 2 about the literature assignment while driving on the highway. I was laughing so hard, I thought people must think I'm crazy. I came home later that evening and played that section for my husband. We both laughed so hard. Thank you for the laughs, the stories, and the intrigue. Please keep it up. You make my travel enjoyable. Signed, Jamie. And this one from Steve, five stars. This is a fantastic program. I look forward to every episode, and I've spent many extra minutes in my car to finish an episode. Thank you so much for such a wonderful program. Thank all of you so much for taking the time to write those reviews for this show, 1001 Stories for the Road. We'll be back again real soon, and keep your eyes open for a lot of changes. You might be seeing some new logos, and you might be seeing a fourth new show called Radio Days. We'll let you know when that happens. It's going to be soon. We'll see you soon.